Welcome, folks. Glad you're here. Another monthly call with Mark. A few days early this this month. It's not. I mean, it's really still March. Didn't even get to April before we had the monthly call. Excited to talk to you today about marketing and sales and making sure you understand the difference between the two and making sure that as you figure out how to spend your time, you are you are spending it in a way that so there's harmony between all your activities basically and your goals. That's really that's really what I'm talking about because there have been so many times where I've had conversations with with people, especially with coaches, where they tell me what they're going to do and I I can tell that there's a basic disconnect between their goals and their activities and that's not obvious to them and there's no reason it would be obvious to them because they're new to all of this. They haven't seen it for, you know, a decade plus and across hundreds of businesses. So I want to talk about this today. I want to put some stuff on the screen. I want to chat with the few of you who attend live. The beauty of the private podcast thing, for those of you who actually want a chance to talk live, is that now that we do the private podcast, very few people come live. So if you ever want to chat, come to the live session. There will be an opportunity to talk because most people are now consuming this through the podcast. Okay. Am I sharing a keynote presentation? I can't tell from Zoom if it's working. Yeah, okay, good to go. All right, so today it's called the Marketing Sales Continuum, Continuum, and we're looking to find harmony between marketing sales and your business model. And it's not on the screen, but harmony sales, your business model, and your personal goals and your, your values. Those things have to be part of this conversation. So many times in the past, you've seen me put the revenue cycle on the screen, the revenue cycle, breaks business down into three phases, marketing, sales, and fulfillment. In the marketing phase, strangers become contacts and contacts become prospects. In the sales phase, prospects become customers. And in the fulfillment phase, customers become evangelists. This is my framework for looking at every business and any business. And today we're focusing on no like, and trust and the offer. That's what I call the marketing sales continuum. Because the fulfillment part honestly is comparatively easy if you've nailed marketing and sales. And also I have to always be uh, redirecting your attention back to marketing and sales because the tendency for all of us, me included, is, is to want to focus on the client experience rather than on the things that create clients. So that's why today I've created this sort of spectrum here on the screen. And at, the, at one end of the spectrum, we have a stranger. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have a client. Everyone who ever buys anything has to travel the journey from stranger to client. Now, in different marketing kind of uh, educational like courses and, and books, you'll read about how people go from, they'll go through stages. One of the stages would be called, or the beginning stage would probably be called problem unaware, meaning they don't know what they don't know. They don't know why they hurt. Then we go to problem aware. They know why they hurt, but at problem awareness, they're still not, they don't have any sense of what the solution is. They progress through solution awareness where they know why they hurt. They know what the solution is. And now they're looking for a solution provider. And then they eventually make a purchase. We can overlay this marketing and sales continuum with that, where in order for a person to actually have to make a purchase, even once they become solution aware, they still have to know, like, and trust 
the provider and they have to accept an offer that the provider makes. No one ever buys anything unless no like and trust are in place and until someone makes them an offer. So the question becomes for us, what is the most efficient way for me to move people along this, uh, along this journey? Oh, by the way, I put up another slide here on the screen that shows more of a funnel view of this thing because we tend to visualize this idea as a funnel. Later on in the conversation, I'll talk about why I don't love the funnel paradigm for every business or for every business owner. But in a funnel, you can think of a stranger being at the top of the funnel and a client being at the bottom of the funnel. And as they move their way through the funnel, they progress through knowing you, liking you, and trusting you and hearing your offer, and then they become a client. So if you're listening to this, it's fine if you get a sort of a funnel, uh, visualize a funnel in your mind as you listen. But I would prefer to have you think of it as a continuum where they start at they start at stranger and they finish at client, because I think that's a close closer to a representation of how our world, especially in the coaching world and in the freelance services world, actually tends to work. Okay, so the question becomes: What is the most efficient and effective way to help enough people complete the marketing and sales journey? We all know that it takes marketing and sales to make the amount of money we want to make, but what, what's the most efficient and effective way to do that? And I want to reframe that and say, well, first things first, let's ask ourselves if we prefer a marketing heavy, heavy approach or a, a sales heavy approach. Let me talk about the difference between a marketing heavy approach and a sales heavy approach. Those of you who can see my screen can see that I've got what I think is a good representation of a marketing heavy approach on the screen. It's where someone starts as a stranger. They come in contact with us, they discover us. And then there's, there's lots of time and lots of touches dedicated to increasing the amount that they like us and they trust us. Lots and lots of like, lots and lots of trust. And then eventually there's an offer. They accept the offer, they become a client. Examples of a marketing heavy approach, of course, would be a business where there's a podcast or there's a social media feed or there's a newsletter or there's some combination of those where lots of time and touches are dedicated to helping that person who used to be a stranger, not just be aware of you, but actually like you and trust you in the specific context of their problem. Eventually, after there's lots of like and trust established, then there's an offer. And because the trust is so high, the sales phase is short and it's mostly just taking an order. There's not a lot of heavy lifting to be done in the sales phase, be, sales phase because so much of that like and trust has already been accomplished. That's what I call a marketing heavy approach. And the businesses that take up the most room in our minds, in, in, our, in our community of coaches and freelancers, they tend to use a very marketing heavy approach. Uh, an extreme example of a marketing heavy approach would be someone selling a multi-thousand dollar or even you know a $10,000 plus coaching experience or a mastermind or a certification, all the things that we see sold in our world, they sell that, but they sell it strictly with maybe a few videos Maybe they sell it with um, just a single sales page and 
they don't have to talk to the individuals who are going to buy the thing. That's possible when there's so much like and so much trust already in the relationship that the actual offer itself is mostly, mostly just explaining some amount of detail about what's in the offer, what's in the experience, and then giving somebody a place to put their credit card. This is a marketing heavy approach. It, it leaves the salesperson, it leaves the sales process with very little work to do. But sometimes we see and uh, we see in our in our world, and we even hear recommended a much more sales heavy approach. So where is my sales heavy slide? Okay, lost my place. All right. This is what a sales heavy approach looks like. First of all, the journey from stranger to client is much shorter. No like and trust and the offer are compressed in, into that much shorter period of time. And the like and trust factors have to be delivered kind of loudly, forcefully, because they don't have a lot of time, right? Meaning I don't have multiple weeks or multiple months during which that person naturally comes to like me and trust me and is prepared to hear my offer. So I have to really deliver a big dose of like and trust in a very short period of time. Well, what does that look like? What are some examples of that? Uh, I don't see this as much anymore, but maybe sort of late 2000s uh, through the early 2010s, you know, you'd get an email from somebody who you had opted into and they're recommending somebody else's program. It's clearly an affiliate arrangement. You click through to their partner's sales funnel and you get hit with a super exciting webinar. You get hit with tons of testimonials. You get hit with big uh, risk reversal messages around sort of like, here's, you'll get your money back or this is where you get, um, you know, the whole thing is valued at $11 million, but today it's 97. This is a very sales heavy approach that's designed to cause a conversion in an extremely compressed time frame. In our space, even in even in the coaching space, a very compressed approach to the marketing sales journey would be I meet someone, I set up a consult, that consult lasts 20 to 30 minutes. At the end of that consult, I make them an offer and not only do I make them an offer at the end of that consult, but I don't really leave them an opening to go and think about it. So we're talking about no like and trust and the offer happening with a matter of hours or days. And I've got to pack all the like, all the trust and the offer into that one 20 or 30 minute sales call. And then I very often have to kind of play some games to, uh, well, my bias is coming so, th so clear here. I have to play some games to extract a yes or a no in the moment. This is a very sales heavy approach. Can it work? Absolutely, it can work. It can work to great effect. Do I, do I choose it? I personally don't choose it. Um, I've talked to, of course, many, many people who are, who are building their businesses and some of them are using more of a marketing approach and some are using more of a sales heavy approach. And I'll give you a guess as to which one has more sort of adrenaline in it, more stress, 
more excitement. Uh, a sales heavy kind of coach sounds something like I have, I have three consults set up this week and I have two that I'm following up with. And one said that they had to put it on three different credit cards, but then after they talked to their husband and after they figured out those three credit cards, then they were going to get back with me. And I told them they had till Thursday if they wanted the bonus. And this is a very sales heavy approach. A marketing heavy approach sounds much more like, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been producing my, I've been publishing my podcast for a while now. The, uh, a trickle, a steady trickle of people are listening to it. And last week I had somebody reach out to me and ask me if it's possible to work with me one-on-one. Um, I let them know that that is possible. I gave them an idea of the price and, uh, I told them that if, that if that sounded like it could be a fit for them, then we should go ahead and jump on a call and maybe talk about what it would look like to work together. And then when you get on that call, it's mostly just confirming the yes that's already in their head. It's not creating a yes that isn't in their head. A marketing, a marketing heavy approach is the business of, is the business of growing yeses in people's heads and then confirming them through a sales experience, you know, whether that's a webinar or a one-on-one sales call or whatever it is, we're just confirming the yes, that's already there. A very sales heavy approach is one where we're having to create a yes that isn't already there. And can it work? Yes, it can work. I just happen to think that the more sales heavy approach tends to be more, more stressful. So I want to pause here and I want to give the few of you who are here live a chance to chat with me about how you're hearing this. Uh, what are you hearing as it relates to a sales heavy approach versus a marketing heavy approach? What questions does it give you, if any? And if nobody raises their hand, it's no problem. We'll just keep talking. I think you all have the ability to go ahead and unmute yourselves if you want to. So is there something in between these two? Because... I mean, you asked the question, how do we take this journey from stranger to client in a most efficient, effective way? Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're giving us like two ends of the spectrum. So is there something in the center? Yeah, you know, great, great question. The, yes. And nothing really ever exists at the extreme. The, the thing I mentioned earlier about sort of this late 2010 or late 2000s, early 2010s kind of very aggressive approach. It still exists. That's probably the most extreme version of this that is out there, but I don't think it's typical anymore. What's more typical is, is definitely more of a hybrid approach. It's where you have a steady stream of like, and trust kind of experiences for the person you're trying to serve interrupted occasionally by a direct invitation. And that can look like a launch depending on what you're selling. That can look like a launch. It can look like a one-on-one coach saying, I have had a, I've had an opening in my calendar. I would love to work with one of you one-on-one. If you, if that's appealing to you, reach out to me. So these things definitely tend to exist more on more in the middle of the spectrum than they do at either end of the, either extreme. There are those coaches occasionally who struggle to ever get out of the no like, and trust phase into the sales phase. And that sounds like 
I've been publishing my podcast or I post on social every day. Oh, great. When was the last time you made an offer? Well, I don't want to pressure people. I really prefer to just, um, you know, I just want to, I just want to give them all this information. I want to give them all the information I possibly can. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, when are you going to invite them to do something? Because you can't really ever generate a transaction until you invite them to do something. So yes, yo, the, uh, the, the middle ground looks like a steady trickle of trust building experiences interrupted by an occasional invitation to do something else, to do something more. Great. And we'll talk more about specific examples of that. Um, I think I've got Rachel's hand raised. Rachel, you want to unmute? Yes. Um, so what I'm seeing from this is marketing heavy is longer term strategy, perhaps. Um, and sales heavy is a little bit more short term. So I'm going into a little over two years of my business. And so when you're first starting and you're trying to build up that clientele, it's like the long term strategy uh, is good to do and practice, but then how do you balance that with needing the sales or, you know, needing that business in the moment and not being able to wait as long? Can you tell sense. me what you mean by needing business in the moment? Um, I guess what I'm saying is like with the marketing heavy approach, you just kind of are relaxed and you're building the like and trust and they will come to you when they're ready um, kind of situation. But if you're needing to bring an in income to keep your business going, is that then you take a sales heavy approach in the beginning? Okay, great questions. Um, First of all, I want to clarify one thing. You just said they kind of come to you when they're ready. That's actually not what I'm proposing. Okay. And it, it might sound like I'm, I'm uh, playing word games here, but this process, um, even a marketing heavy approach does not work without direct invitations. And direct invitations are the responsibility of the provider. So it does mean inviting people to take another, uh, a next step with you, go to another level with you. That's our job. Otherwise we'll probably never generate a transaction. So this isn't a marketing heavy, heavy approach is not, if you build it, they will come. It's okay. if you build it and then invite people to participate in it, some of them will. Okay. That's what, that's what we're talking about now about needing money to keep your business going. I happen to believe very strongly that if you need money when your business is new, the best way to, to, to uh, accomplish that is through a job. Okay. So having a separate job. Mm -hmm. Got it. There's a lot, there's a lot there, but the biggest reason is I happen to believe there's nothing more important to, especially for coaching, although this is true in, in freelance services, like I, what I do with my bookkeeping, there's nothing more important than your ability to present yourself as calm and confident because we, these are trust businesses. And if you, because of financial pressures in your life are not able to present yourself as calm and confident, it's, it's repellent to people. Eagerness. Oh, I, I think eagerness in eagerness in a, in a, in a trust-based offer to me is just poisonous. Humans are, we're, we're still pretty simple animals where if we're being chased, we run away. But if we see something that intrigues us, we tend to move closer to it. And 
the way we the way we maintain that in in a, or the way we sort of make use of that in a trust based business like ours is is we keep ourselves very calm, very confident, so that people are much more likely to be intrigued by us than they are to be suspicious of us. So I always tell people, oh, if you need money, get a job. Thank you. Uh, Part of that, by the way, is that I don't believe it takes full-time hours to build a coaching business. In fact, I think full-time hours are probably counterproductive in a new coaching business. Maybe we'll come back and talk about why I think that's the case. But uh, when I hear people say that they're going quote unquote all in on their coaching business, I get super nervous because I'm like, oh good, you're going to go chase people and tell them that if they act by Thursday, you're going to give them the super special bonus. And it's just, that's totally antithetical to what I believe to be the posture of uh, an expert advisor, which is what a coach is. That will vary depending on your business model. So we're going to talk about business models in a minute, but if you need money, get a job. Maybe a job uh, working for another coach. That's a, that's a great scenario. Okay. So earlier I said, what's the most efficient and effective way to help enough people complete the marketing and sales journey? But that's not a full question, or that's not a complete question. The complete question is, What's the most efficient and effective way to help enough people complete the marketing and sales journey so I can earn what I want while doing work I enjoy for the number of hours I prefer? That's the full question. It's just a mouthful. And there's a lot of questions inside that question and they can be very hard to answer. So what we tend to do is default to what is the most efficient and effective way? Uh, No, we don't actually know. Let me back up. I don't think a lot of people care about efficient and effective. I think they just ask the question, how do I make a lot of money? I want to make a lot of money and I'll deal with the rest of it later. I'll deal with efficient. I'll deal with effective. I'll deal with whether or not I want to do the work. I'll deal with the number of hours I'm working. I'll deal with all of that later. Right now, I got to get that money. And I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like that approach. I don't think that's good for mental health. I don't think it's good as a long-term business strategy because what you tend, what you what you succeed at, you are likely to continue. So for example, I have had clients over the years who succeed with hustle and then they can't stop hustling because the thing that you, when you find success doing something, you will start to really believe that that thing is the reason for your success and you will find it very scary to let it go. But if you never slip into that trap, if you never slip into kind of money at all costs, then you never have to break the habits that you form while pursuing money at all costs. You never have to train yourself out of pulling all-nighters because you never pulled an all-nighter in the first place. You never have to you never have to wonder how do I cut back to 15 hours a week because you never worked fifth, you never worked more. So my advice to people is how is to think about your business, think about your marketing strategy, your, your sales approach and your business model in the context of what you want 
your life to look like and then succeed within those constraints and don't buy into the lie that you can't. But in order to do that, we have to look at business models. I want to show you these business models, business models, and then I want to talk about how do we, okay, so how do we approach this? Back on the screen for the audio only folks, I've got a slide that says business models exist on their own continuum. At one end of the continuum, we have low volume, high touch. And the other end of the continuum, we have high volume, low touch, which is kind of a misnomer. We'll talk about that in a second. But at the low volume, high touch end of the spectrum, we have obviously one-on-one -on -one coaching. For freelance service providers like me, we would have uh, freelance services where we have relatively few clients at a relatively high monthly fee or retainer. My CFO business for the last four years was a low volume, high touch business where just a few clients paid me $3,000 a month. And that was it. That's the whole business. Let's do the books is more is closer to a high volume, low touch business because of the sliding scale fee structure. Can be happy in both, but they're very different games and, and you don't want to, you don't want to play them as though they're the same game. We have a lot of business models available to us in, in the sort of self-help or expertise driven space. We can do one-on-one -on -one coaching. We can do retreats. We can do group coaching. And then the extremely high volume, low touch examples would be things like memberships and courses. Something that I don't love is what I believe to be a prevailing belief that high volume, low touch is actually the holy grail and that everything we're doing in our business is, is mostly so that we can someday arrive at high volume, low touch. That sounds like me talking to a relatively new coach and hearing her say, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one right now, but I mean, obviously, and the word obviously does get used a lot. Obviously what I'm ultimately looking to do is, is to have a membership, like fill in the blank person's membership or I really got to get into groups. Or I just think that I want to just package this all up. I find myself saying the same things over and over. I just want to package it up as a course. And I think that's the, that's the business model I ultimately dream of. The problem with that is we tend to think of those, those models in terms only of the product that we're manufacturing. So memberships are appealing to us because I can have a thousand people on the call at the same time because, because a hundred thousand people could be my member in my membership. And I perceive that to be the same amount of work as if I had just a few one-on-one -on -one clients, the same thing applies to groups. The same thing applies to courses. Well, I'm repeating myself so much. I just want to put it in a course and you know, that's scalable quote unquote, that's scalable. Maybe, maybe. But what comes with high volume, low touch is a, is a lot of other kinds of work. So if we look at low volume, high touch, we have one-on-one -on -one coaching where there's relatively less marketing activity, less tech, meaning it requires less software platforms, a, a smaller team, because we don't have to have a Facebook ads manager and uh, an online business manager to manage the tech. And we don't have to have a graphic designer. We, we don't have to have all these things that higher volume, lower touch businesses require. We need a 
phone and probably a computer and internet connection, maybe some calendaring software. That's it. Oh, a way to take payments, a Stripe account, a PayPal account, business checking account. I mean, that in a one-on-one business, that's all there is. So there's so much less overhead, mental overhead, technical overhead, human overhead in the low volume, high touch world than there is in the high volume, low touch world. Because if I'm going to run a membership, first and foremost, I have way more marketing activity. Memberships and groups, a person who decides to do memberships and groups is mostly making the decision to have their primary job be filling memberships and groups. They, of course, are still doing work with their clients and adding value to their clients. I would never say otherwise, but their the, the lion's share of their mental space now has to be devoted to filling groups and replacing mem- members who cancel. It has to because the math demands it. So for given lev- uh, revenue levels, for, for comparable levels of revenue, we're not really choosing less work or more work. We're mostly choosing types of work. For example, I just recently had a catch-up call with a former CFO client of mine who's a good friend. We just keep in touch. And she, the, the majority of her business is a, is a high-ticket groups business. The majority of her time now is spent running a team and thinking about marketing. And then she occasionally gets to coach people. That's her business now. I have another friend, also a client, who is in a high-ticket one-on-one business, and she spends, she has a, you know, a virtual assistant, and she has, uh, I mean, she does have a website, I guess, but she spends 80 plus, maybe 90% of her time with clients and maybe 10 to 15% of her time in administration and marketing. Whereas my other friend spends probably 80 to 90% of her time in marketing and administration and actually probably less than 10% of her time coaching. It's not that one of those is better or worse. Some of you come from a background of leadership and management and, and building things And when you hear that, you say, that's perfect. I want to be the CEO of that coaching company, spending 80 to 90% of of my time in marketing and administration. Perfect. You would be wise to pursue a membership business model or a group's business model that requires a bigger team, requires way more administration, and will allow you to spend your time that way. If you got into this business because you were excited to pursue uh, coaching and help people with the tools that you've you've developed yourself and learned, then something more in the in the end of uh, one-on-one coaching, maybe some groups, maybe some retreats, is going to be much better suited to how you want to spend your time. And along those same lines, when we're talking about earning the amount of money that you want to earn seems like there's so much pressure to go from low volume, high touch to high volume, low touch because of the perception that one is the way to make more money and the other one isn't. And I just want to tell you that if you're in a one-on-one coaching business, 
your next easiest dollar is not from changing your business model. Your next easier dollar is from raising your price. And that stays true for a long time. Now, many of you will come back and we could talk one-on-one and I'd probably be happy to, if you ever wanted to do that kind of work together, but many of you will come back to, you, to me and say, nope, nope, there's an upper limit on what my market will pay for coaching. So I have to switch to a high, higher volume, lower touch business because it's the only thing that my market will bear. Maybe, maybe. Let me frame this another way. If someone asked me with eight years of experience as, as the money guy in the industry, having seen so many businesses, if somebody said, Mark, what is the easiest way to make $100,000 a year as a coach? I have a quick answer. It is to have somewhere between one and 10 clients per year. That's the easiest way to make $100,000 a year in the coaching industry. And then you, some of you will want to say, yeah, but I don't want to coach coaches. And you have to coach coaches if you want to do that. Wrong, not true. You have that bias because you spend so much time with coaches. But the coaches who are making, the coaches who are, who are, who are having, let's say, fewer than 10 clients per year, they're not, they're not on podcasts for the most part. They don't have huge social media followings. Their businesses are built one relationship at a time. And yes, they do sell coaching to people who have the ability to pay somewhere between 10 and 15 and 25 and a hundred thousand dollars per year for a coaching engagement. But because that's their business model, their marketing model does not require them to be part of your social media feed. So these are silent businesses. They're businesses you've never heard of and you'll never hear of because they have no reason for you to hear of them, but they absolutely exist. So if someone asks me, what's the best way or the easiest way to make $100,000 a year, I'll say, yeah, just one-on-one coaching, somewhere between one and 10 clients per year. Now, if someone says, what's the best way to make a million dollars per year? Well, now the conversation gets a little bit more interesting. A million dollars a year as a one-on-one coach is absolutely possible and it's being done. It's not as, it's not as common, of course. So now we, we start to look at other business models. We start to look at other business models and how, how you get to those. But I want you to know that on average, if you're, if you've decided to pursue a million dollar per year income, you've pretty much decided to do a lot of marketing, marketing type activities and um, to actually have your time divided or given more to marketing and to administration than to coaching. It's the, the, the math is just pretty relentless on that point. Who wants to unmute and ask me about that or debate me about that? Cause you know, I love to be disagreed with. It's fun. Any thoughts? What pops into anybody's head as I talk about those, those realities? What if you don't want a million, but you want more than a hundred? It's still, it's still the same. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, so if you asked me 500, Mark, what's the best way to make 500,000 a year? I would still say, Ooh, let's see how far we can go with. I would say, let's see how far we can go with a one-on-one business. Yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> What's that? I'm not doing that anymore. I just launched my membership. Because? 
Um, I like marketing. Good. <laughs> I, I like building a team. I like building a big business. So, cool. um, and I'm also okay. Like I don't need to make a million. Um, want to make more than I've made the last couple of years, but I mean, you and I have talked about my money goals. But Amanda, you may, you may end up at a million in spite of yourself. And what I mean by that is, which is fine. I'm totally fine with that. You, you just told me that you are choosing what I call million dollar work, which is team building and mm-hmm. heavy marketing. That is million dollar work. And so if you head down that path and you persist in it, you probably land in the neighborhood of a million regardless. The key for you the, and the key for anybody pursuing mo- a model like the one you're pursuing is that you always check in with it yourself on how much you're working and whether you still like the work that you're doing. Right. And I don't work that much and I like what I do. Yeah. Perfect. That's so, perfect. I mean, I've, I've set up, a, I mean, I've, this is my first business. I've set up a pretty sweet gig for myself. And I like what I do. Yeah. You, um, yeah, I think you're going to do great. Uh, for anybody listening, this is Amanda who's talking with me right now. And Amanda, having Amanda tell me she just launched her, launched her membership honestly is different than if a lot of other people told me they were launching their membership, because I know Amanda's business is her coaching. She's had other businesses, but your coaching business is three, four years old. Four. Mm-hmm. Four. So four years old, you have a lot of experience now in, uh, finding resonance with an audience. Mm-hmm. And so there's not really a question in your mind about whether you can speak to a person's pain and offer her a solution to that pain. Yep. So now we're just, we're just magnifying what you already know in the form of advertising and a scaled up business model. So yeah, I think you're positioned to, to do great. If you were in your sixth month of business and you're like, I'm going to launch a membership, I'd say, well, <laughs> You, you absolutely can. Yeah, sure. You can. It's, it's going to be harder because you haven't yet found your resonance with an audience that, that makes that scale possible. Yeah. And the reason I decided, well, I mean, I've, I've had a membership while I've been doing group coaching. I've been building that membership while I do my group coaching. And so, and I mean, I could decide to do another group at any time or do one-on-ones for pretty high tickets because I've built my time in a way that I like. So I could open up spots and say, Hey, if you want to coach one-on-one with me, you know, this is the, this is the number. Right. And I feel pretty confident in doing, but I don't think I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say never, but I doubt I will do that. You probably won't need to. There also is some kind of weird psychology that maybe near neither here nor there for that conversation. But at a certain point, if, if a certain, if a coach who's offering certain things in a certain way, if she comes back and offers one-on-one, it can actually be perceived as a step backward for her. Well, and I wouldn't like put it out there and say, Hey, I'm offering one-on-one. Like if somebody approached me and like, I really don't want to do the membership. I want to pay one-on-one. And I say, okay, this is my price and they're going to pay it. Then I might do it. You know. Exactly right. Yep. That's, that's exactly how I would think about it. Yep. That's exactly how I would think about it. So, but, but I launched the membership because I already had a year and a half worth of building it 
and content and that base there before opening it up to the public. So they come in and it's already a full membership with lots and lots in there already. Uh, which is important, but less important than a lot of people think. The thing that's important to your membership and the reason why I believe it will be a success is because you have that same, I don't know, year and a half, two years now of successfully filling groups. Yep. And filling groups and, and replenishing a membership. Everybody, please hear me. The word is replenishing a membership because that's yep. the business of memberships. It's yep. not building a membership. It is replenishing because people are constantly leaving. Yep. But Amanda, having done the, the work of filling groups over the last couple of years, it, it's, you know, it's the same kind of work that you'll be doing to, to replenish your membership as you go. Yeah. And I mean, doing a one-on-one versus trying to fill a group, like filling groups is a whole different animal. It is a complete, thank you for saying that it is a completely different game. Yep. Um, so yeah, and you've, you've won at that game and, and by the way, everybody listening, I believe could win at that game. Sure. Uh, I don't want anyone to think that they have to, in order to be in a business that they love. No, no. So I just, this is, I was really, really specific about the business that I wanted and building it. Yeah. So, and this is what I wanted. Yeah. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm I'm excited. No, I'm, it's I'm, it's no. good. I have no doubt. Um, yeah. while you're here, I want to ask you what, what's your, do you plan to just offer a membership? Do you have a backend offer in mind? Um, no. Okay. At I'm going to point, no. I'm going to just sort of push on you and say, you're going to want one. What, I will tell you, what do you mean I, by backend? I mean, something that costs multiple thousand dollars. Like, like a one-on-one or another group. Like, I mean, like the number in my head, if that was like, I would do a 12 week for maybe 10,000. There you go. It's something in the neighborhood. Now, everybody, here's why I'm saying this. Uh, everybody I've ever worked with who has a very successful membership actually generates a high percentage of their profit. The money that goes into their pocket at the end of the day actually comes from the offer that they make after the membership. Right. So I do workshops, retreats all that in addition, which is where like a large portion of my income comes from. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. I'm excited for you. Thanks. Excited for you. Who else? Who else? Uh, Rebecca, please. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, really interesting stuff. Um, I'm, and, and just in this last, um, as you were talking with Amanda, I found it interesting because I sort of realized, oh, I've been filling groups for a really long time. Like, I don't know, well, five, six years, 10 people at a time over and over and over and over again. And I'm doing it for the last time right now, like in this, in this um, way, um, after like I, there, there've always been cohorts and after this group comes through, like we sort of like, we start on Monday and after this group goes through, I'm going to Evergreen and um, I'm really looking forward to it. Like I'm really, like I've sort of like already sort of implemented some parts of the process have become more automated. I don't do any sales calls anymore. Like they just sort of do an application. If they're a good fit, they get a video and they get some emails. And at this point, 
it's like almost hundred percent, like almost everybody actually, I have a higher, <laughs> I have a higher sales rate now that it's automated than I did when I was doing one-on-one, which kind of blows my mind. Um, and so what was really interesting for me to see in those slides is um, the, the compression of the sales process. And I wouldn't have thought that a sales heavy necessarily meant a shorter time in terms of like when they first find you to when they actually, you know, sign up or to, to make a purchase. And I'm wondering if that's always the case or if that's, I, I guess that's my first question. The second question is what about sort of allowing for there to be both running for the different kinds of clients? Cause I feel like some customers make their decisions in different kinds of timeframes regardless of who is making the offer. Like they just sort of have their own different way of making decisions and choosing who they want to work with. Um, well, first of all, you're right. Uh, when you said, I wonder if that's always the case. No, nothing is always the case. So these are sort of, uh, they're, they're models I use to sort of think in general terms. Mm-hmm. So you tell me what would be an example of what you just said about there being both. Being both so that there could be a way that somebody could, I mean, I, I guess I think of myself as having been marketing happy for all these years. And now I'm starting to think about a funnel that will make sense when somebody comes in, when they first know me, and I guess is sort of potentially short in the sense that like they're being, that it's sale, like sort of like, sort of like you're, you're showing them the sort of relatively short, here's this clear offer. You can sign up today. You can get you know, come into the the course now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, if that doesn't work out, if after however many, after that funnel ends, that then they go into this long, slow marketing. And that for some people, that's all they'll ever get that their ability to warm up, to be ready to buy will always take them six months or two years. Or, I mean, I feel like I'm always getting people that have been, I can't, like, I can't even believe they've been on my list getting these emails for so many years. And then they finally decide, okay, the time is right. Um, so I feel like, I feel like this shift will actually allow me to better accommodate those people who are quick decision makers, who are ready, who are like, this is what I want right now, as opposed to waiting for whenever the next launch is going to be, which is what it's been like for, for a very long time. Let me give you some guesses and let me make sure I say again, these are guesses. I'm not a marketing and sales strategist that digs into like the actual numbers. Uh, My guess would be that on average, if somebody, and this also is a function of price point, but my guess would be that if somebody comes into your awareness and makes a purchase relatively shortly afterward, especially if it's in the multiple thousands, Mm -hmm. they may have just come into your awareness, but you didn't just come into theirs. Mm. Very likely, very likely they've sort of bounced around your world. They heard you hear, they heard you speak at a thing. They listened to one of your podcast episodes. Once they were on your list for a while, they got back off. People tend to bounce around. Mm -hmm. And so usually, especially if it's a multiple thousand dollar thing, it is extremely rare for, in my opinion, for someone to become aware of and purchase a multiple thousand dollar thing Mm -hmm. in a very compressed timeframe. Now, because I've been the bookkeeper for so many coaches, I can tell you that those people tend to buy everything from everyone. 
Because mm. I can be like, oh, look, she bought that from her. Oh, look, she bought that from her. That, that <laughs> personality type buys a lot of stuff and they've trained themselves to buy a lot of stuff. So um, yeah, it, it can happen. I think the question you're asking me is, is it okay for me to make an offer early in the relationship and then, you know, pluck the low hanging fruit, harvest the low hanging fruit, and then continue to nurture people. And they can make, they can make that same purchase later just as easily. Well, and, I think that that's what I'm planning on, on doing. I just, I hadn't thought about it in, in the framework that you had just shown. I hadn't thought about it as being sales driven versus marketing driven. I had thought that they were, you know, that everybody would have need to have some of both. Everybody does have need to some of both. So let's be careful not to uh, overinvest in my, my definitions. When I say sales heavy, I mostly, I'm mostly talking about the, the amount of time in which like and trust is established and the offer is made and the mm -hmm. activities that are meant to do it. Okay. So this is also just a personal opinion, but if I meet someone and then very soon after I've met them, they offer me something for multiple thousands, thousand dollars for me, that does impact the relationship long-term because for me, it's the equivalent of asking someone to get married after the first date. Mm -hmm. And if you do that at all, you occupy a certain space in my head that that's purely me bringing my bias to this, but uh, other people would feel totally differently. Uh, a person that comes to mind is Frank Kern. So um, Frank Kern was Brooke Castillo's marketing and sales coach for a while. And I, I got on his list. I lasted on his list for like an hour. It was, I mean, it was offer, 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 offer. And he does make millions of dollars, or at least that's my understanding. So there's more than one way to do this, but um, trying to do it both ways. I don't know. I don't know. It's a fair question. It's a fair, fair question. I would caution people against looking at people too mathematically uh, and too logically. None of us are logical. None of us are rational. And so if we take a hyper rational or logical approach to how we do sales and marketing, we're, we're acting like people are less human than they actually are, not in a de demeaning way, but in an impractical way. Mm -hmm. like human beings are erratic and irrational. So I, in fact, I have a very strong opinion from the businesses that I've worked in that do spend somewhere between hundreds of thousands and millions of, of dollars per year on advertising. I think they tend to fool themselves into thinking their businesses are more math driven than they actually are. And they're much more kind of organic and word of mouth than those people even realize. Anyway, can you make an offer early in the relationship? By all means, Rebecca, and then you can test and see what, you know, see if you like how it's going. The key, so everybody, Rebecca said evergreen. She's taking what used to be a group coaching experience and she's making more of a, is it an evergreen course or is it? It's going to be some sort of a hybrid where it's like, there was always a course component and they will start getting that automatically. That will be the part that gets really like now, like up till now, they would have to wait until like we're starting, you know, today and they'll have to wait a few months and everyone start today. And now they'll start getting that automated. And then the live calls will now happen 
will continue to happen every week. The calls will actually be happening more often. They'll, you know, that there won't be these sort of breaks as they had been in the past. So you're going to be doing more calls now than you were doing before? Um, no, because I was doing multiple cohorts sometime. I think at the, over the course of the year, probably not because I would do multiple cohorts. Like if I had 20 people at a time, I'd be doing multiple, I'd be doing, you know, if there were 20 people at a time, it'd be calls for only for groups of 10 each. And now it'll just be one call, but it'll be through the year. And if I get to large enough numbers, then, then it will be, when it gets to large enough numbers, then we'll add in additional calls. Are you going to advertise exactly on Facebook? Go. <laughs> um, I will probably do some list building on Facebook. I haven't, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out. Um, that's my, that Facebook ads, my Facebook ads have been almost entirely like list building and a little, little bit of retargeting to my audience. Yeah. Okay. The program itself. Uh, I, I should have maybe phrased that more as a statement than a question. If you're going to make an evergreen business work, you're going to advertise on Facebook or it will be really feast and famine. Unless you have some other way to have a lot of people become aware of you. Because a lot of people have to become aware of you. You think it needs to be more so over the course of a year than if it were launch driven? Mm. Well, a launch driven business is the same. A lot of people have to become aware of you in order for the launches to succeed. And when you take away, when you make it evergreen, you take away the urgency that a launch fabricates and it, and it becomes, you know, it, it becomes a, a slightly more difficult sale because there's no, because it's easy to procrastinate it. Anybody else want to check? Good to talk to you, Rebecca. Anybody else have thoughts along those lines? If you do, just go ahead and unmute. Okay, let's conclude. Let's head toward concluding by talking about this. I want, I want to talk about and hopefully clarify the difference between marketing activities and sales activities. Now, I, as I pointed out to Rebecca, these are not I'm not in a position to declare the truth, the capital T truth. So these are my opinions and they're meant to be conversation starters for you and thought, thought starters for you. But I have seen enough that I can speak intelligently about these things. And when I see someone engaging a certain type of activity, but thinking she's engaging in another type of activity, then I want to raise my hand and say, Hey, you're, you're not doing what you think you're doing. Uh, so uh, if we use Rebecca as the example, this, she's not doing this, but this would be an example of what I'm talking about. If Rebecca said, I want to sell an evergreen sort of hybrid course coaching experience, and I want to charge a couple of thousand dollars for it. And I said, okay, well, what is your marketing strategy? Meaning how are enough people going to 
discover you and like you and trust you. If she said, well, I speak at uh, an industry event, whatever industry it is, I speak at an industry event uh, three times per year. And that, so that's my plan for having people get to know me. And I would say, okay, is it a hundred thousand people at the event? Like, is that, are you speaking to just a stadium full of people? If no, then that's probably not the marketing strategy for that business model. In fact, speaking, you can see on the list, I've got my, on the screen, I've got my list. Speaking is, is not really a discovery activity unless you are speaking at someone else's event or on somebody else's Instagram feed or on somebody else's podcast. That is a discovery activity, but speaking tends to be great for building a one-on-one business. Maybe a few groups per year could be, could be filled through speaking couple of groups per year, but speaking is mostly an activity that's going to lend itself well to filling a one-on-one practice. In fact, that's true for most of these marketing strategies that are on the screen, uh, other than advertising on Facebook or, or other paid advertising. But for those of you just listening, what I have on the screen is that the, the goal of marketing is to increase no like, and trust. It's to prepare people for an offer. So examples of marketing are introducing yourselves to yourself to new people, going to events, being more social. These are marketing activities. Um, advertising helps people discover you, being a guest on other people's podcasts, speaking at other people's events. You can speak at your own event, and that is a marketing activity. And speaking at your own event looks like hosting a retreat. It looks like uh, teaching classes. It. What else could it look like? I mean, you know. Publishing on, on, on Instagram, that's kind of speaking at your own event. Content publishing in general is more of a, of a like and trust activity than it is a no activity. In other words, a discovery activity. The Instagram algorithm can help you. The YouTube algorithm can help you. The, the Google search algorithm can help you. They can take your content and put it in front of other people. So that is a thing it doesn't tend to be what many people experience. So I talk to people who say, well, I've posted on Instagram every day for six months and nothing's happening. That's because you're engaged in a like and trust activity, not so much a a discovery activity. It's not really a way for new people to meet you. If you want new people to meet you, you have to go find new people and meet them. That might look like advertising, might look like um, attending things, but the, the single biggest, uh, it's, it's not mistake. The single biggest misunderstanding that I see among newer coaches is that they think that like, and trust activities are discovery activities or contacting activities like podcasting. Podcasting mostly is a way to help people trust you more. And it's not so much a way for new people to find you. Is that always true? No, because if you podcast for long enough, and your podcast is interesting and useful enough, it will get shared. And as it gets shared, it becomes a discovery tool. But it doesn't ever have to be shared in order for it to be a great tool for building like and trust in a, in a contact that already knows you. It's, it's like having a 15 or 30 minute or one hour conversation with someone without having to be present. So there's a ton of trust built there. 
Whether they share it is the question, but they don't have to share it. So that's one of the biggest misunderstandings is thinking that you're doing contacting activities when you're not, you're actually doing trust building activities. And the other big uh, miss for me that, that I observe in people is when they're doing sales activities and they think they're marketing activities. And the single biggest one here is webinars. So someone will say to me, well, I, I want to, I want to improve my marketing. So I'm going to start doing webinars. Like, yeah. That's not what webinars do. Webinars take people who already know you and like you and trust you. And they give you a chance to sell those people something. They create an environment in which the yes that you've already been building now gets translated into a transaction. That's what a webinar is. Sometimes people want to teach classes. I think teaching classes is phenomenal. What's the difference between teaching a class and doing a webinar? It's just intent. A webinar's basic intent is to sell. A class's basic intent for me is to build, is to increase a relationship with people. But if someone says, I want to grow my list, I want to grow my audience, so I'm going to teach classes, I'll say, no, that's not what teaching classes does unless you go and promote those classes to a new audience that has never heard of you before. I had a coaching client recently who came to me. We had, she loves teaching classes. She has a, a strategy where she teaches a class per month. And I've told her, you know, that's, that's a great thing to do, especially because you enjoy it, but it's not inherently going to grow your reach or your audience. So when we talked the other day, she said, I had my class coming up. I did not have as many people registered as I wanted to. So I went out and made some connections with other Instagram accounts. I talked to some other coaches. They told people about my class. And then I had a lot, I had something like four times as many people register for that class. Great. That's because instead of just doing a like and trust activity, now you turned it into a contacting activity by going out and promoting it. That's the difference. Just hosting a class is not on, not on its own, uh, uh, an audience building activity. So I just like to bring these things back, back into people's awareness because I feel sad when people feel like they're working really, really hard. And when they're not getting a lot of results, they think it's because they're dumb or they're bad or because they're failing or because they're cursed or whatever. And usually it's just, you're doing a certain type of activity and expecting a completely different result. This is, we're just trying to align the activity you're doing with the result that it can generate. So don't do trust building activities in hopes that it's going to really accelerate your contacting. And don't do sales activities and think it's going to really accelerate your contacting. Contacting accelerates contacting. Is there a is there a quote unquote marketing effect to some sales activities? Yes, absolutely. Somebody may come to your webinar, which is purely for sales and it's their first interaction ever with you. And they build a lot of trust with you in that, in that hour. Awesome. So it does happen, but you wouldn't want to rely on it as your, as your strategy. You'd want to be more thoughtful of here's how people come to know me. Here's what I do to help them like and trust me. And then here's how I ask them to buy stuff. These are distinct 
activities. Who has final questions or comments about that before we sign off for the day? I just have a comment. Yeah, so it seems like in my brain, like as I'm looking at the marketing, as I'm thinking about the marketing continuum, it's like the continuum is made up of like, like little invitations for mm -hmm. a stranger to move through the continuum, right? Like I am inviting you to get to know me like that's list building, right? I'm inviting you, I'm going to make an offer and invite you to get to like me. I'm going to make you an offer and invite you to, to trust me. And we're, we're like inviting them to make all these mini actionable steps to then get to like the offer. Am I, am I kind of hearing that right? Or uh, maybe, but they may not even be that they may not be discreet invitations or even, um, yeah. Uh, they may not be actual invitations. So when I send somebody my newsletter, if I, if I write a newsletter, mm -hmm. I'm not explicitly inviting them to like me and trust me, but if the content I write touches on their pain and kind of hints at a hope for a solution, and if they like my style, then the like and trust is happening as a natural consequence of those touches. Mm -hmm. You might have intermediate invitations. So somebody might know me and then along their path to a, a to an offer, maybe I do invite them to a class. And in that class, we have a one-on-one -on -one interaction. And then the like and trust goes way up because of that one-on-one -on -one interaction. And then down the road, they're more prepared for whatever offer I'm I'm making. So these things can happen very organically. Sometimes people make them very mathematical. They, it's like they 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 want a prospect to do A and then B and then C and then, you know, purchase or whatever. Fine. But especially in a one-on-one -on -one coaching business, funnel thinking, I don't think is, I don't think it's appropriate to a one-on-one -on -one coaching business. One-on-one -on -one coaching businesses are much more like gardening. You plant seeds, you water the seeds and they bear fruit eventually they bear fruit kind of at all different times and the fruit comes unexpectedly. It's not necessarily in a particular quote unquote season, but you you're starting relationships, you're nurturing those relationships. And then those relationships are translating eventually into paid coaching engagements. So it's much more like gardening than it is a this, this strict mathematical funnel. Got it. All right. I love math. So I guess I better go back to gardening. <laughs> Actually, that's what I'll be working on. So this will be great. I'll have my brain into gardening. You know, if you really, it's, if you love Matthew, make use of it, make use of that love. Um, I've, I think that a lot of people are surprised by the true math of a one-on-one -on -one coaching business In a one-on-one -on -one coaching business. It tends to be true that a very high percentage of people who really like and trust you end up hiring you. Whereas in a membership business, it tends to be that a very low percentage of the people who really like and trust you end up consuming that membership. And that's fine because the math is still amazing for those successful memberships, but it's such a different game that yeah. in a one-on-one, -on -one, um, uh, a one-on-one -on -one business requires patience more than anything else. We, we were talking earlier with Rachel about what we, you know, we were having a conversation about what if I feel like I need some money now? And I said, I'm not, I'm when somebody says they're going to go quote unquote, all in on their coaching business, I'm not ever that excited for them because I think coaching is, 
growing a one-on-one practice is about patiently letting relationships develop over time and then having those relationships become coaching engagements. And they, they seem many, many of those seem like flukes, Frank, frankly, like they seem to sort of pop up out of nowhere. It's not out of nowhere, but it's not so mathematical that we can trace steps A, B, C, and D. But the fact is steps A, B, C, and D were there. They just happened over an extended period of time. And we didn't see most of them. We don't know what conversations were being had about us when we weren't present. We don't know what a person has heard. I I had a one-on-one client who hired me almost six months ago. And his path to hiring me was so convoluted. It didn't fit into a funnel. It was my girlfriend knows who you are. And then I listened to you on a couple of podcasts. And then this other thing happened. And he just sort of ricocheted around my world. And then saw an opportunity to talk to me and then hired me for coaching. That doesn't mean that we as coaches are doomed to have it be totally sporadic. It just means it will take time for the relationships we're building to bear fruit on a pretty consistent basis so that things smooth out. Got it. All right. I love that imagery. That is super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Hey ladies, fun to chat with you. Um, maybe in a, maybe in another call, we'll, we'll kind of take that idea of gardening further and we'll talk about relationship mapping, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I do have a, I will say I have a very strong bias. I have a very strong bias toward one-on-one coaching businesses. And part of the reason I have that bias is because I know that lots of other people are going to do a great job promoting the benefits of memberships and groups and high high volume business models. And I believe those businesses are valuable and they do a ton of good work in the world. So there's nothing wrong there. I don't think enough people are saying, Hey, by the way, a one-on-one coaching business is one of the most elegant business models that a free market has to offer. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it gets overlooked. It gets viewed as a stepping stone to other things. And it, it does not need to be. So I will let all those other people talk about the power of memberships and everything else. And I'll be over here saying, by the way, a one-on-one business can be a pretty great business. Thanks for being here. Thanks for chatting with me. And uh, we'll talk to you in the next one. See you.